Ukraine. Thank you, Maggie. Um, since uh, you, you, you introduced the, the point of reading poetry, um, we had a few requests from some of our listeners uh, for a Ukrainian poem to be read out. And uh, specifically, the Testament by Shevchenko or Zapovit. Um, Uliana uh, very kindly agreed to, to do so. Uh, she'll do it in Ukrainian because, well, we think that's that's probably the best option here. Uh, but I've put a, a tweet up in the nest that has a link to an English translation as well for anybody who wants to try to follow along. Um, Uliana? So the testament by Shevchenko, just a short introduction, that he like was one of the most prominent Ukrainian uh, po uh, poet writers, um, like novelists and artists, and much of his kind of uh, artistry revolves about this kind of will to fight, will to resist Russian occupation during the times of Imperial Russia, and that's also like is seen throughout his poetry and also in a lot like in his testament which I'm about to read. Як умру, то поховайте мене на могилі серед степу широкого, на вкраїні милі, що була найшироко полі, і Дніпро, і кручі, було видно було чути, як реве ревучі, як понесе з України у синє море кров ворожу. Отойдія І вони, і гори, все покину, і полину до самого Бога молитися. А до того я не знаю Бога. Поховайте та вставайте, кайдани порвіте, і вражою злою кров'ю волю окропіте. І мене в сім'ї великій, в сім'ї вольній новій не забудьте пом'янути незлим тихим словом. Slava Ukraini. Slava. Slava One of the last lines of the po of the poem talks about how after the Shevchenko dies, uh, that he would like to be remembered in a family that is free, like that is new, and that they will still remember his legacy and remember those who were fighting for the freedom of Ukraine. Kimberly?
Kimberly, feel free to uh, unmute your mic and go ahead. Kimberly, it's not a problem. If you have trouble with your audio, um, you can also just simply send us your statement. I'm going to Ah, oh, great. I got it. Uh, what is a Slovak Ukraine or something? Glory to Ukraine. Glory Roman to Ukraine. Great, Roman was a great soldier, and he died for what he believed in. His country he saved millions of lives. Getting women and children out of that country. Putin might celebrate this, but Putin burn in hell at the end. And we'll all dance on that, just like we did with Hitler. And we still today. Just sorry for your loss. And Hearthstone loses a soldier in war. He knows what he signed up. He was a true soldier. Like I said, he helped save millions of women and children and men in Ukraine all over. I don't know why I break when I went when I call. I don't talk that often. I just listen. But getting to own a hope, hope is for everybody. And there's always a better day to hope for tomorrow. And that's what Roman did. He hoped for a better tomorrow. His tomorrow will come. Ours will, but we got to keep fighting this fight. And I just looked and it says right now more than 100 GOP primary winners back Trump false election. That is not good news for Ukraine. If Trump's people get in our Senate and Congress, there will not be one more weapon sent to Ukraine. I can guarantee you that. They're all Putin sympathizers. Whatever Putin have on these people is ruble, ruble and that. That that will be a disaster. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you for um, that. Let's uh, rest in peace, Roman. Let's go back back to back to Liana. Good day. Uh, it's about it's about what you just shared in the nest domain. Uh, it's about uh, that in one of like in one of the last notes uh, he got from. His friend is about it's a poetry like a favorite piece of poetry of Roman written by uh, Mikhail Semenko, who is a member of Executed Renaissance, so uh, basically executed by a Soviet Soviets for kind of writing and creating poetry in Ukrainian, and the poem is written Patagonia, so you could you can see it in a nest. That one of the last notes were kind of also a poem. 
Thank you, Eliana. Um, I think today, this afternoon or morning or evening, uh, might be full of these you know, half minutes silence. Um, anybody who wants to come up and speak, please click that request button in the bottom left corner of the screen and uh, we can bring you up and you can have your say. If uh, you want to ask about other things going on in Ukraine, that, that's fine as well. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, although this is a, a truly terrible thing to happen, whenever I heard him speak, he was full of fun, jokes, a totally vibrant attitude to life. And I really think that, you know, that's the way everybody should try and live, really is to embrace life, find the joy in it. Um, I've had a little cry, I'm sure we all have, but I believe it's about celebrating what he's done with his life. I mean, the brightest of us, you know, sometimes don't live the longest. And um, we've got to remember that his memory is what's going to carry it forward. Um, there's going to be an awful lot of things done to remember him and um, all of us can take time to remember him and all the others that have died along with him he's not the only person out there he's just the one who's closest to us so we can take his memory and use that to honour everybody just my thoughts there Thank you, and very correctly so. Um, no, there are a hundred and more, just like Roman, every day, dying for Ukraine. You know, if I can add just something uh, a little bit. So, I'm actually appreciative of all the help that is going to Ukraine. I know that the uh, limitations and people are always making mistakes. You know, it's... Uh, and politics is, is a difficult game. Sometimes uh, the solution might seem obvious to one part of the populace and the other part seem, thinks it's crazy. But there is one thing that I keep coming back to, especially when I experience things like, like Roman's death. And... This is this thing when we read about, for example, Polish history, about all those young men that died uh, in resistance, fighting the communists, or before then fighting uh, the Nazis. And uh, and you always, you have this, just, just snapped biographies, right? Just uh, people who, who were in the middle of their 
third semester of architectural studies so they were to become a doctor or something like that and often when we look at historical events people say well this could be prevented because uh, you know if uh, somebody did that or or somebody did this uh, maybe the war would wouldn't spread so much and uh, but then people say well from it's easy to say from the point of history but back then nobody knew that right so i just Although I'm maybe the cynical is not a rule, but I'm realistic on what can happen in the coming months and and days. I, I just I just think it's really important that this space, among others, other things, is documented and archived, so that we will be witness to the fact that when in twenty years' time people will say, "Well, nobody really wanted to give too many guns to Ukraine," or nobody thought about that back then. Well, maybe we at least will know that there were people who who wanted from the first days of war, who knew what what has to be done, and uh, yeah, that's that's the that's the most important. Just uh, you know, it's one thing to to, to look on uh, on past mistakes on, on history and say, well, it it could have gone other way, but it's just just so painful when you look at the present mistakes and you cannot do anything about it or we can actually but uh you know what i mean thanks thank you Machi. uh let's go to kevin and to patty kevin yeah hey thank you uh thank you guys i'm terribly saddened uh to hear of roman's loss and um i just wanted to relay a a brief thing from my experience recently where I, I happen to lose my mom, a God bless her. And it's, it's just an amazing loss, you know, but what I found was strength entered into my body and my soul. It kind of coincided with a lot of this space growing organically. And, and, and it's just a resolve that we can all get. I think in this space we can, so let's just, let, let's try to accept what Roma gave us and it, and it can fuel us for generations. And that's all. Thank you, Kevin. Um, Patty. Hi guys. Um, I'm a very nervous speaker and um I just tried to raise my hand, and not only did I lose my connection, but my entire telephone rebooted. So I'm checking to see if you can hear me. Loud and, loud and clear, Patty. Loud and clear. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to offer my condolences to all of you at the Walter Report. This must just be such a gut punch. And, and um, I'm, a, I'm a listener, and I'm sort of a speck of the population of the United States and I'm old <laughs> and um and not only that I'm an old pacifist um I actually protested war I have a hunch that Patty might have experienced another technical difficulty. I'll uh, let her know. 
So gentle people. Um, from time to time, we fall silent, just in awe, because we're receiving messages and notifications from various parties who all have in some shape or form contributed, have uh, listened uh, to Roman, or people who knew him and been with him in the past. And uh, some of you already know very well, he has touched upon many people's lives due to both his early activism on Maidan, as well as at a later stage during his political activism where he pursued corruption, no matter where it was, and did so. Uh, there's a thread by uh, Olga Hodetska, a friend of this space and who's been on with us, uh, who did the forensic reporting, if you remember, um, in Irpin, because she is from the area. And uh, she posted a thread which I shared here uh, in the nest. If you put it into your Twitter, you can go through it. Uh, it translates easy. Uh, there's a automatic translation function, which I can only recommend because she obviously wrote in Ukrainian and uh, uh, she shares a few thoughts as to how she continued to um, be in touch with him and follow him. As Yehuda said, um, he has not only been uh, laconic and humorous, but also avid and insistent in pursuing <clears throat> the opportunity to fight. And he's done so with um, sincere intensity and quality. As many people have said, he was a natural born leader and commander. And as such, he acted in a reconnaissance unit directly at the front lines in order to spot the enemy and make sure that Ukrainians could make changes to the front line, change the calculus and uh, overwhelm the otherwise numerously or by, by numbers overwhelming enemy by sheer wit, quality and smarts. And that's what they've done. The 93rd, as CJ uh, summarized it earlier, did tremendous, tremendous warrior work in order to destroy first stall and then push back, repel and destroy uh, Russian forces in the Izium area. But they have been quite versatile beforehand, close to Sumy and to the northwest of Kharkiv. There's an astonishing feat and uh, losing such a bright light of a young man, an inspiring leader, and an inspiring leader with uh, such a large following of people who looked up to him. It's tough, but this is what conventional war holds. This is what we have to be prepared for. And this is what we need to take into account. CJ. Yes, thank you for that, Axel. <clears throat> Just to give more perspective um, you know, sort of the kind of mission that Axel and his, or sorry, <laughs> Freudian slip there. We're all great leaders here, but I mean, we're talking about Roman now, of course, um, that Roman and his, his unit had been asked to do. As Axel mentioned, you know, he was a part of a, such a great unit, the 93rd. Um, as we're reading through the threads here, you know, not only was Roman not, a, you know, a full-time active duty service soldier before the war, but he wasn't even with that unit since the beginning. He had recently joined about, it looks like a month ago. 
And so previously, the, there was an air assault brigade in Izium from the beginning of the war, uh, one of Ukraine's best units. These guys, had, I had trained with them uh, over in Hohenfels a few years back, and they're, they're known as very heavy hitters in the Donbass. Well, their mission at the beginning of the war was to hold Izium at all costs, just a single brigade. And so for 60 days, they held out as long as they could against two tank divisions, so outnumbered six to one. We still don't know all the, the stories of the, their heroism yet. I know Konstantin has talked to some of them, but the unit was basically almost decimated to a man. But in the process, they took out anywhere between six and 10,000 Russians. And while the rest of the Ukrainian army was um, preventing Kyiv from falling, these, these guys were holding out in the east quite bravely. And so a new unit was needed to to help with the, this front. And Izium is such an important part of the fight. It's the joint. It's the juncture between the Kharkiv and the rest of the Severodonetsk salient, right? And this is why when Roman's unit was heading that direction, there was no less than 20 BTGs in this area, somewhere between 15 and 20,000 Russian soldiers. And all they had to, to throw at them was this brigade, the 93rd, of somewhere between two and 3,000. And their job wasn't just to defend Izium, it was to attack Izium against six to one odds. And this is why this unit was given a preponderance of the new artillery and Western aid. This unit, uh, more than almost all the rest, had been completely made the switch over to Western gear. And this is significant for, for two reasons. One, it just goes to show you how important the work that Roman was doing, you know, when he ultimately sacrificed his life for his country. But this is a, a very complicated thing to do, to attack an enemy much larger than you, and also to integrate brand new weapon systems. It's, you know, if you're getting a different caliber rifle, it's not, the principles are, are mostly the same, but getting a new artillery piece with new calculations you need to do, new radios, new fire direction, new observing teams. These, this is something this unit was doing and it required the best and the smartest soldiers to do. And as we know, the soldiers weren't even, you know, soldiers three months prior. And yet they, they knew the Ukrainian general staff correctly uh, put people where they needed to be, like Roman, and gave him this task. And again, even though um, Izium is still in Russian hands, it is now only 7 to 12 kilometers away from the Ukrainian lines. And when Roman and the 93rd started this counteroffensive, they were over 30. They were, Basically, they were outside of artillery range and couldn't affect all of these BTGs, this supply point, this juncture between the two Russian fronts. And now, it's under threat. Izium is under artillery attack. And now Russia, who had moved troops from Izium to Sverdonetsk, has to decide, do they let up the assault on Sverdonetsk or do they do they go back and try and reinforce Izium? So the 93rd and Roman's work has put Russia in a, a very difficult spot, which is was the whole point of the operation. And we'll see in the coming weeks just how successful it was as either you know, they reinforce Izium and, and try and hold back against this onslaught of Ukrainians with very limited but very effective weaponry, or if they just abandon it entirely. So it's it's, it's um, a sacrifice not made in vain, in my opinion. Thank you very much, CJ. Um, Axel, 
Sure. Could could should we? I I don't know. I I don't know what the right thing to do is. Um, but should we deal with a small change of topic? Sure, of course. Well, we have CJ here. Um, CJ, there was a question for you yesterday asking about the differences of the M777s versus the FH70s because more FH70s were spotted on the highway north of Vienna heading towards the Czech Republic a few days ago. If you wish to talk to that or, you know, any anything else. Yeah, so, you know, it was funny because one of Roman's complaints was exactly the triple sevens weren't fast enough and the FH70s are a bit faster, right? They have an autoloader, they have a longer tube, they can shoot much further. However, they're a little bit heavier than triple sevens. They're a little bit more unwieldy to hide because they have a longer barrel. But if you're in a safer position, i.e. further back from the lines, they are, um, they're maybe preferred. It's just with all of the mechanics of an autoloader, if it fails, it gets a little bit difficult to fix as opposed to a weapon system like the triple seven that doesn't have an autoloader, uh, just has more people instead. And actually, you know, sort of as we're talking about artillery and Roman, you know, one of the things he mentioned constantly, as have almost all Ukrainians, of course, is the the, the need for HIMARS and MLRS. And that's why, if it's OK, I want to ask, while well, Maciej's here, I remember we were talking about this a month ago, this supposed purchase by Poland of 500 HIMARS. And I wanted to ask if you'd heard any official updates. I have a theory. I have a theory. It was probably 50 and maybe a translation error because that would be much more realistic. Or uh, another thing might be the semantic error of calling an MRL and MLRS, as in Poland had agreed to upgrade their whole fleet of rocket artillery, had bought some guided um, rockets, but the most of the 500 were going to be something like BM-21s, 27s, or 30s that are unguided and of the Soviet make. I just want to know if Maciej had any updates on that? I know he's been real busy recently. No, sorry. I remember that conversation. That's a great question. Uh, no, I, I just, no, I, I literally, the last time I checked it was when I was talking to you. And basically it was 50-50 then. Some of the experts in Poland were saying we actually can buy 500 of them. And somewhere uh, more close to your, closer to your position where they said maybe they kind of made a typo or there is just some calculation like, you know, one zero is uh, too much. Uh, yeah, I, I will check that for you and uh, in, I, I'll, I'll make a short query and, and find that out. And, I, you know, the, because what you may have missed while you were, you were away in the past week is the story came back, but in a much bigger way with many more people talking about it. And as we saw with Ukraine's request for 300 MLRS, we were kind of breaking it down in the space, whether or not that meant, you know, 300 guided systems or perhaps you know 300 rocket artillery systems with some of them being the the western guided ones and other ones being unguided but still very effective so i wonder if that was the case for ukraine maybe it's the case for poland as well so in general there is huge i mean there is huge uptick in terms of uh you know uh announced buys i mean we are on a revolutionary path in poland here right so uh maybe finally it won't be 500 in the end but i wouldn't be surprised if they were at least aiming for that number i know even the us haven't produced yet right the number like in total uh yet so yeah so i just 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 quick check i I i'll have to talk to some of the guys because i think publicly nothing is yet confirmed uh as to whether but but so 
but since it was 26th of May when the when the news broke and it wasn't like uh, uh, yeah what do you say uh, like there was no disclaimer or nobody actually said it it, it was a mistake so uh, so it's interesting. And I think as well, you know, with all of these things, the reason why it was relevant to, to the, the report here is a lot of people had assumed since Poland has been such a great contributor of military aid, that it was actually some kind of, uh, you know, political military design to get Ukraine more MLRS. And so, I, you know, I didn't want to give people false hope while still recognizing how much Poland has done, which is obviously an incredible amount. Yeah, so a guy I know that works for in DOD procurement has said that the next batch of production for the HIMARS is slated for Poland and Taiwan. Um, so if Poland was going to slide any to Ukraine, now is the time to do it because it's, it's their turn in the production queue. And I know when, whenever and however many arrive, there's going to be a lot of happy Arkansans down in uh, Camden where Lockheed Martin makes these rockets. Uh, I know they will be uh, supporting Ukraine, raining fire down on Russian heads. No, and that's good to know. And just, you know, Raver, maybe you know, it was only supposed to be, I believe, 11 for Taiwan. And I think this batch for Poland was only supposed to be around 20 or so. So not not a lot, but uh, I mean, again, that's it's a pretty big decision for Poland to give these up. It would mean the loss of so much firepower. So it would basically and again, not saying it's not possible, but they would just, you know, have to have a lot of trust and faith in NATO and also the huge U.S. troop presence in their in their country right now. That includes the HIMARS and MLRS from Germany and other places around the world. But, you know, we are shoring up their defense just as well as anyone else. So. If they're willing to take a, a gigantic risk, as in giving up these things for Ukraine under some sort of agreement that they'll get even more at a discounted rate or, or whatever the, the trade-off is, then that could be something that's discussed. Because if it really is about 20, which I think it is, that would be five times as much as America's giving and uh, would have a gigantic effect on the battlefield. So I don't, I don't think it will be all of them. Uh, some sort of uh, Polish uh, lend-lease to Ukraine, uh, use them, and when the war's over, give them back? Well, that's that's one theory. The other one I would have, and maybe Maciej's got some different, well, Maciej and Axel have some different feelings about it, but when I was stationed in Germany and doing rotations through Poland, you know, you may remember the $2 billion offer worked between Poland and the U.S. for, quote-unquote, Fort Trump, and, and no, this is not a joke. There is, you know, what I had perceived as some serious talk about a permanent U.S. base on Poland, like the 30 bases we have in Germany, like the 20 bases we have in Italy. Because right now the bases we, we operate on Poland are they're not a shared agreement. It's just we're using their training area and that's the end of that. So I wondered if uh, and this is the thing, right, with Germany being so reluctant to give aid with us looking at closing down some German bases, perhaps something in this deal could be a, a more permanent U.S. troop presence in Poland if that's what the people wanted in order to offset the security concerns they might have by giving up uh, brand new rockets that they've been planning on for a long time to Ukraine. Yeah, that's I certainly... Have... Yeah, go, go on, Reba. 
Uh, so I, as an American, I would much rather see uh, our troops in Poland and Germany at this point, at least some of them. Uh, Germany has not been a very faithful partner as of late. And given Russia's aggression, I think we need to be closer to where the fight might happen rather than farther. Yeah, of course. And as a Pol, I, as a Polish person, I agree. Uh, I shouldn't say Paul not to basically have Yehuda dad jokes uh, uh, here. But uh, yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think it's just, uh, you know, when the calculus is just based on the fact who's a reliable partner, I think that's just a part of the equation, right? Uh, it just doesn't make sense to have a huge eastern flank, eastern flank like NATO has, not only in Poland, but in Baltics and in Romania, and then keep the majority of the troops and, 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 uh, and you know, permanent bases in Germany. You know, ben Hodges, when he was in the space, talked about the strategic concept, you know, of this tripwire defense, when basically you kind of, in the doctrine, assume that, for example, the Baltics will be given away and then you will fight back for them. And Ben Hodges said really astutely, from, from my perspective, after what you saw in Bucha, what Russia can do, well, it's not the greatest strategy in the world because what if you if you let them to Latvia, for example, there will be nothing to fight back for, right? They they will just destroy everything. And so, so of course, I think the the fact who's the reliable partner is one part of the equation, and, and certainly raises the po Polish stock. And I don't think there is anybody in Poland that wouldn't like to have a permanent uh, basing, you know, of of U.S. troops and NATO in general. That's the way to go, and I think we we go in, in that direction. Uh, of course, there is there is recalcitrance and um, all those political shenanigans uh, on the German side, probably. But you know, it just whatever. Even if the Germans were the the best ally in the NATO uh, possible, I think still to have you know, it's 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 like having. Uh, the troops in Portugal during the Cold War, right? Instead of West Germany, and uh, that's why uh, they are uh, in West Germany. That it, you know, that's 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 just uh, that's just a basic uh, fact. So I think it's it's just uh, I think the, the upcoming Madrid summit will have some decisions about a significant shift towards the western eastern flank. I don't see it any other way. What do you mean, significant shift to the eastern flank of what? Of NATO. Well, it doesn't. Uh, NATO, this is a, a matter of military setup and uh, equidistance. Ramstein Air Base remains the key to NATO in Europe, and it will always be because of its uh, territorial position. It has nothing to do with the country in which it is domiciled. The same goes for at least six large bases in Germany. They are in a critical critical location which no other nation in Europe has. So that's just a matter of territory, nothing else. Well, I would say that the fact that there is no permanent basis on the eastern flank is not just a matter of territory. Uh, I would just, you know... Oh, no, that, and... that's a different... Sorry, that's a misunderstanding. There will be permanent bases, uh, say, in uh, Eastern European nations. That has already been decided by NATO. So if I could kind of blend the morning's topics. Certainly. So 
So something uh, that had occurred to me tonight, and I touched on it briefly, uh, or occurred to me last night and touched on it briefly this morning in my writings, is just how off the historiography in the West was on the motivations of Ukrainians and Slavs in general because of how skewed uh, the voices that were passed down to us were based on uh, post-World War II German memoirs. And people like Roman and Olaf and, and Katriana that have come here to speak have shown us that they are they they have made the, the voices that we didn't get from their their grandparents fully alive by express, by showing how just fully alive they are, which is something we I don't think we got in in the readings we had available to us studying military history. And I don't know. I know CJ's probably better read than me on the the historiography of of war and whatnot. But I, I think Slavic voices were muted in the West for so long, and this connected war is just bringing Ukraine and the idea of of, of the inner inner dialogue of Ukrainians fully to life for those of us in the West. So I think you're right to a certain extent, and and then it's not not just them. them I wouldn't say it's about domination of the German narrative, or maybe not the German narrative, but German like memoirs, and and I read read a couple of those about the the Eastern Front. But for example, it was seen during the last so-called Victory Day, where uh, actually President Zelensky tried to claim, and I think to a large extent rightfully claim. Uh, the tradition or the heritage of the you know great uh, um, patriotic war, or, or basically beating the Nazis, the Nazis, because uh, Ukrainians shed blood in the Second World War, and it wasn't only Russians, right? So, so uh, there is this automatic thing where everything that happened on the territory on, of Soviet Union. Uh, because Ukraine wasn't on the territory, you know, uh, during these times. Uh, is basically uh, Russian history, and it's just not the case. And I think it's also among the Slavic voices, there has to be place for Ukrainian voices because they are different, especially now. Historically, uh, you know, uh, but now it's just, just, just a huge difference men- in terms of mentality, in terms of culture, in terms of approach to the West uh, and its ideals, in, in terms of approach to democracy, democracy and, and stuff like that. So, so Ukraine was really, uh, you know, uh, sovereign-minded even in 1991. Uh, if you read books about the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was one of the, apart from the Baltic states, which, you know, were never uh, actually, um, their, their being part of the Soviet Union was, was never recognized even by the United States um, during the whole Cold War. Cold War and the Baltics were the first ones to to make the split. But uh, from among the uh, the Soviet uh, bigger republics, Ukrainians were the first ones. And basically, the Ukrainian referendum uh, for for independence was 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 one of the nails that that basically uh, was shut the coffin of, of the Soviet Union up. And and from that time also, the, sorry, because I'm making a, a rant about history that that doesn't pertain to the question. But I think you're right. Well, I think Dust, you're right. Matthew, you're right. It's absolutely right what you said. Keep going. No, no, I, I know I'm right, but Raver was talking about slightly different thing. I was just saying, just to finish the point. So the, there, is a, there was, from the start, from the 1991, there was divergence. And, and before that, uh, 
in uh, in perception between Ukrainians who view themselves as a independent people, as people different than Russia. Some of them wanted to have, for example, trade relationships with Russia. That's true. Uh, but Russians always felt that Ukrainians are the younger brothers, that they always have to have like Ukrainians under Ukraine and Ukrainians under their arm. And they always felt like really betrayed almost when Ukrainians wanted to go it alone. So that's just uh, that's just a tradition that I'm that I'm referring to. But but I think it's so important to see uh, the Ukrainian history even before the nationhood itself started, and and then to look uh, at the the, the newest, um, the the most recent history because that's that's important too. Maciej, I'm going to just ask you something real quick. Um, sorry, I see Generator. Maciej, um, you mentioned the Ukrainian referendum. Can you remind us what the Poland did at that point? So after, so Poland was the first. So I, I don't remember the exact order. I think Canada, Canada was first. Or Poland, you remember the one who was the first one to recognize independence of Ukraine. Canada and Poland did it the same day. I don't know what oh, they were so doing. Oh, so they was. did it. Yeah, right. So, yes, so they, they were. But what what happened three months before that? So I don't know what you're referring to. I'm frankly. I'm referring to the the Polish preemptive recognition of oh, right. yeah. independent sure. Ukraine. You, you you can talk about it. Or I can talk about it. Up to you. Yeah, go on, please. So about three months, maybe four months, I, I forget exactly when, uh, the Polish government, I think it was the first democratically elected government of Poland, basically sent this diplomatic note saying that Poland recognizes the uh, right of Ukraine to be an independent country if Ukraine chooses to be so, and uh, also states, and something that's been uh, you know, reaffirmed by every Polish government since, that there, that there are no territorial disputes between Ukraine and Poland, as far as Poland is concerned. And, um, you know, that Poland wishes to work with Ukraine as an independent country for forevermore, uh, with no, you know, in, in, in friendship and without any disputes and so on. Um, and then three months later, after the referendum, they reaffirmed that publicly. I, I just wanted to know this because there's a there's a strong stream of Russian propaganda that tries to drive a wedge between Poland and Ukraine uh, when and where no such wedge exists. Just wanted to, to know that since we're talking about the Ukrainian independence referendum. Yeah, I think it was the right decision. And I think both Ukraine and Poland and many other countries recognize that if you want to be a part of the collective West, you cannot, even if there's like as you know, because maybe there's a small part of Polish society, like especially people that have heritage in the so-called Kresy, so pre-war Poland, eastern regions, which are now part of Ukraine, Lviv among them. Uh, so they are, they have this like melancholy or nostalgia, which is completely natural, right? But politicians recognize, and Ukrainians did the same, that when you want to be part of collective West, the territorial disputes with other countries 
actually are a hindrance on your government and your country. And and Russia understands it too. But so countries there there is there is you know there is a, actually a rule that you can point to in Central and Eastern European politics. The countries that are that have long-standing territorial disputes are usually the countries that are that that fared quite poorly because you know they they basically are are kind of stuck between the two realms right in uh, uh so georgia you of course ukraine after 2014 and, and and moldova are prime example of that so i think polish politicians whatever the their their political colors and you know takes were, were were just so conscious that the because the one of the first i think uh realizations was that poland if it's going to be democratic and free it has to have uh nato ambitions and has to have uh you know european community um, ambitions then because there was no european union then in 1991 i mean um so so that that's why you have to close all those disputes and you won't gain anything you have to concentrate on uh uh, on basically building up your institutions, building up your economy, and that 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 I think even Ukrainians I think to some extent were uh, ready uh, to move past even so painful of history because in case of Poland it was of course uh, people were uh, forcefully deported and people were you know uh, basically there were huge forced migrations uh, facilitated by the Soviet Union so so it's it's a, it's a different thing but and and it's in the case of ukraine it's more recent thing but what russia does it shows that it will never let you just live peacefully right uh, they take they taken crimea ukraine wasn't making any efforts uh, to retake crimea or retake parts of the donbas that were occupied by russia but it wasn't enough for them right because they wanted to destabilize the government destabilize the whole society even further Thank you, Maciej. Um, I just wanted to, you know, you to comment on this. Um, go, go ahead, walk the dogs. Uh, we'll go to CJ and to Raver. CJ? No, I... Oh, sorry, can I, can I just say something yeah, first? Um, Oliana, this is a whole lot easier to read in in English. Um, by easier, I don't mean physically, I mean emotionally. Um, CJ? No, I appreciate Raver's uh, kind words. You know, I'm definitely no expert in... Um the you know the cold war era armies or anything like that just you know the little i've, I've read in history that's why i just want to say with with roman's death and everything we sort of mentioned um you know i am hopeful i am i am optimistic about this ramstein three or this brussels summit and i you know because i just saw the reports too from germany and, and you know i know we i know we've had a lot of problems with their their claims and whatnot but it does line up with the timing and the training uh, as far as i'm aware that the Panzerhausens will be there pretty much the same time Schultz is there. And then that seems to make sense. And then on top of that, with the, the air defense and then also the <clears throat> MLRS being delivered soon after, you know, a little bit behind America and Britain, but not by much. I, I choose to to hope that this week is different, you know, let's say for, for Roman's sake, but for all of Ukraine's sake. And um, and yeah, more positive news. And, and uh, you know, as Axel's written about, the, the dam seems to be breaking in terms of the situation and whether it's going to come in at a time where, you know, it might be too late for some people. It's, you know, it's certainly too late for Roman and, and all the brave Ukrainians that have died thus far. It's still not too late for the country for, for more aid to be given and for everyone to do their part. Um, as we all know, we have to. 
Um, CJ, do you want to comment possibly on the stuff that uh, you, Axel, and I were talking briefly about uh, last night? I guess it was last night for everyone. Yeah, and so basically what you know we were talking about is you know what kind of other aid could be delivered to Ukraine with all the different security assets you know generally and open source that are in the area and the reality is you know this month a lot of the american forces are switching out in um in europe and this is a pretty known fact new units with brand new artillery pieces coming to bear so it should be interesting to see if some of these are also you know trained help train ukrainians and maybe give up some certain pieces and so on and so forth but you know this is quite an extraordinary deployment of Americans. You know, typically people set out for a six or nine month rotation. They know when they're going, they know when they're coming back, but tens and tens of thousands, at least of Americans have gone to Europe, you know, starting back in January and February with no idea when they were going to return. And, you know, obviously it's not the same sacrifice that Ukrainians are making. I'm not trying to say that, but it has been uh, unprecedented in terms of the, the material commitment out of, you know, pretty much out of nowhere that, that sprang up. And basically with these new troops and weapons going to the front, it's a, it's a commitment not only to Ukraine, but also NATO as a whole. So there's no, despite whatever political or news um, that is maybe not talking about as Ukraine as much, it's, still at the forefront of America's national security policy, which is which is a great thing because if it's at the forefront of America's national security policy, it also means it's it's going to be uh, NATO's foremost thought. So I hope they've listened to Axel taking uh, his guidance on how to deal with Germany because I think it is um, I think it's going to be a good week for Ukraine. Thanks, CJ. Uh, Raver. Yeah, CJ gave me a great segue uh, to, to plug my raid in memory of Roman today. Uh, one of the ways we can help Ukraine win this war is by giving my raid the funds to buy the Ukrainian troops what they need to help survive on the battlefield, things like IFACs and tourniquets or ballistic vests or thermal vision. Um, so everybody, please, if you can today, reach deep in memory of Roman and give to my raid so that... Uh, the, the loss rate, you know, that one to 200 soldiers a day that they're losing right now, we got to, we, as a space, need to do our part to try to bring that number down. And I'll go back. Thanks, Raver. Um, we're getting Sir Britt up. Uh, if you connect, excellent as well, uh, who can, uh, you know, also comment on these things from the other side of the Atlantic a little bit. So, Britt, if you, uh, you know, if you want to go ahead with anything, uh, feel free. Otherwise, I can give you some prompts. Uh, mic check. Loud and clear. Wonderful stuff. Yeah, I just want to, first of all, just echo um, some of what CJ was saying about the uh, recent, um, well, not recent, but the, uh, the exceeded amount of um, American commitment uh, and the rotation. He's absolutely right. Uh, I saw a lot of the American deployments, um, and they are—they've been um, uplifted in many ways. Some ways that's not been talked about, and it is extraordinary the the, the commitments that the Americans have had to this. And they've really—the um, only criticism they were a bit slow off the mark. But America's a big beast. But once it gets its wheels turning in the right direction, there's no greater ally Europe can have, um, and that's clearly been evidenced. And 
it's fantastic to see this. And I've met uh, many Americans that have recently deployed to the uh, UK. They're always happy to be here. Um, sometimes they call us an unsinkable aircraft carrier. Um, so, uh, which is a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of funny comment, especially the American base that I came out of. But anyways, uh, but uh, so yeah, no, that's been good. And it's kind of um, sort of been echoed uh, from the UK as well. Uh, there's, you know, there's about... 12,000 British soldiers currently in Eastern Europe um, and obviously others in other parts of Europe as well. There's, there is talk of larger deployments and what more can be done. So obviously we're not able to meet um, the beast that is America, uh, but the UK is certainly looking at how it can expand its deployments as well. Uh, so I know that is being discussed and is on the cards, seeing the possibility of that. And there is many soldiers across the UK who are on... Um, like 12-hour deployment notice and stuff like this at the moment. So uh, there's a lot of going on. And I know there's more trainers heading over there. Uh, my uh, brother, who's in the military, um, he, one of the uh, commanders that he works with, he's an artillery guy. Uh, and uh, he knows of many artillery trainers that have been sent out um, that are going there. He knows many artillery trainers that have been called up around bases in the UK to head to places like Salisbury Plain. Uh, to train Ukrainian soldiers. There's quite a large contingent of Ukrainian soldiers in the UK, um, probably more than you'd think, to be honest. Um, and so there's lots of plenty of training going on. So this is really good. And I think CJ is absolutely right. I think this we're starting to see a bit of a shift, um, particularly from Germany. Um, you know, it's taken a while. It's taken a few, I think, backroom beatings, but it's starting to get there. And I think international pressure is starting to build. And it just absolutely shows you know when axel and people like doman were saying from the start that you know if the german people and wider uh, european people and of course our friends in north america and of course you know maybe places like australia as well um once international pressure starts to build it's amazing you know what leaders will do to remain in favor and stuff like this and germany is starting to be a bit of a dam that cracks are beginning to show and i think they're starting to step in the right direction i think france is a bit of a different beast i think france has to be tackled independently like they always have uh, france always tends to have its own interest values at play and we need to work with them on that uh, but it's it's definitely been some good progress so i just yeah just absolutely just echoing cj's comments uh and uh, axel's and yourself comments uh Dolman. thanks sir brit um <clears throat> How do you I, see the... I, oh, Axel. Yeah, please. No, 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 please. Go with your question, please. Apologies. I'll come up. No, no, no. Axel, you go ahead. Um, I can keep my question. Quick question for you, my dear Sir Brit. What do you think Great Britain should do if and when the Germans are just still dithering, despite the fact that they could release other nations' leopard ones and could release other nations' Uh, donating leopard twos, leopard ones that would be five leopard um, nations who can, leopard twos. There seems seems to be a list of anywhere between five and seven, most likely six, who could. Would the UK be best advised to simply do what the Americans cannot necessarily easily do without providing for sufficient jet fuel, meaning releasing a few of those otherwise to be. Um, decommissioned and melted down challenges? 
I mean, uh, I'm not privy to the Challenger program. Um, I have a few friends who work on it, but uh, I think that's absolutely something that could be well sort of experienced on and uh, well explored. Um, there is a set of Challenger 2s that are due to be commissioned, um, decommissioned, sorry. Um, and obviously the Challenger 3 program is well on its wheels now and is being delivered. Um, and I think that's possibly something the UK can do. I think I haven't heard many conversations about it. Uh, it has been mentioned, but I definitely think the UK has the political will to do something like that. But I think I, I think it's a bit too soon to tell with stuff like that. I think come later in this year, I think there's a lot of people who are calling um, for the UK to, to review a lot of its defence policies because uh, the UK has been positioning itself in the Pacific to counter China for many years and the Americans have really been pressuring the UK to up its game. Um, So, Brit, I think we lost your audio. I'll get the Subrit up in a second. Um, Ralph, uh, if you have something quick in the meantime, feel free. Yes. I think uh, Macron is just soft until the second day of elections is over and then it is he's getting hard against russia we will believe it when we see it so so Brett, you're back up what did you last hear uh, you were saying China and the commitment and that the U.S. was pressuring in order for Britain to provide more coverage and more um, deployment in, China, in um, Southeast Asia. Yeah, so the essential one I'm getting at is that later this year, there is there's more of the sort of strategic command at the UK. There's more kind of now attention obviously being focused on Europe and whether we'd actually want to expand our arsenal of main battle tanks and stuff like this, because mainly our arsenal has been based around counterinsurgency and about expeditionary forces, because um, the UK amasses a whole different types of weapons that it would use if it was ever involved in a war. Um, but with the change, potentially, that might come, I don't know if it will, because there's still a big push to move further to the Pacific. Um, it's kind of a deeper question about the Challenger 2s. 